Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe, or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. First up, as always, some community reviews. I've had some really lovely ones recently. First, from Tarani Neri, who says, quote, I'm enjoying this podcast's approach to Victorian history. I just wish the episodes were more frequent. I do realise, however, that life can't just be about podcasting. Keep up the good work, end quote. It occurred to me that perhaps some new listeners might have missed me explaining why I only release one main show a month. It is because I have a full-time job and am a hands-on dad. I am committed to this show being high quality with well-researched content. Each show typically involves me reading multiple textbooks, journal articles, blogs, museum websites and frequently primary source materials. Some of those are hard to read too. John Conroy gave me another reason to loathe him when I found his handwriting was illegible, so reading his letters makes me feel like I'm trying to translate Sanskrit. I can't imagine Sir Robert Peel or Queen Victoria enjoyed reading them either. Anyway, once the research is done, it has to be turned into an entertaining script. Recording can take a few hours, and editing can take well over a week. As I need to write more scripts, I typically have two or three I'm drafting on overlapping topics, plus dense research notes on future topics when information might come up. That means I can only do one show a month and keep the standards up. I do try to do minisodes as well to give you extra content. I envy those full-time podcasters who can devote themselves to their passion. The most I can promise is a commitment to giving you a great show once a month for years to come, with bonuses as and when I can make them. Listener Conlayla has left a five-star review and said this is their first ever history podcast. I'm delighted you have found the show and are enjoying it. If you get the History Podcast bug, check out any of these great ones. The Australian History Podcast, Pontifacts, History of Empire, History of Spain, the British History Podcast, the Fall of Civilizations Podcast, or Flashpoint History. Any of them will give you a great catalogue to dive into. Listener, JFW3 has left a nice four-star review. They enjoy the show lots and left a nice long review, so I won't read it all. In summary, they love the show, but feel the minisodes confuse the narrative by jumping about too much. Well, I'm glad you like the show, and I do know that the search and organise functions on iTunes and 
podcast player apps don't make searching and ordering shows according to personal preference easy. The minisodes are the non-linear part of the podcast. The main episodes always follow a chronology. If in doubt, listen to the main shows in order and the minisodes however you fancy. The minisodes are popular and fun to do, so on balance I'm going to stick with them. But thanks so much for taking the time to review the show and give me feedback. It is appreciated. Now, to turn to the main narrative. How do you know if you had a happy childhood? Memory can be a tricky thing. The act of remembering alters the memory, as do the feelings you have when you remember. To quote from an excellent book called The Organised Mind, quote, The act of remembering something is a process of bringing back online those neurons that were involved in the original experience. The neurons represent the world to us as the thing is happening, and we recall it. Those same neurons represent the thing to us. Once we get those neurons to become active in a fashion similar to how they were during the original event, we experience the memory as a low-resolution replay of the original event. If only we could get every one of those original neurons active in exactly the same way they were the first time, our recollections would be strikingly vivid and realistic. But remembering is imperfect. The very instructions for which neurons need to be gathered and how exactly they need to fire are weak and degraded, leading to a representation that is only a dim and often inaccurate copy of the real experience. Memory is a fiction. It may present itself to us as fact, but is highly susceptible to distortion. Memory is not just replaying, but a rewriting. End quote. This shows memory is far more plastic, far more fallible than we realised until quite recently. Memory is an act of reconstruction as well as an act of accurate recall. That's why we offload our memory into backups like photographs, diaries, letters and journals. By putting them together, we get a more accurate reflection of events. We need to bear this in mind when we look at Victoria's childhood. If you know a little bit about her, you will be vaguely aware that she felt she had a lonely and unhappy childhood. We are going to do a deep dive into her childhood and see if that is really true. After all, unhappy often mean periods of unhappiness 
that seem to outweigh the periods of boredom, indifference and joy that make up life. Did the things Victoria went through really mean she had an unhappy childhood? Or did it just mean that some very unpleasant things happened to her? That she blew up into a narrative of a miserable childhood? So much of our lives are hung on the narratives that we use to make sense of ourselves. It is far easier to tell ourselves that we are doing more or sacrificing more or are more oppressed than anyone else because that narrative makes us feel more important rather than recognise we are just one life amongst millions reacting to circumstances as best we can. Now, with the waters well and truly muddied let's step back now and look at some of the wider facts around Victoria's early childhood. The indisputable fact is that her father had died when she was a baby. She was living in a time when childhood was extremely risky. Children in the early industrial era frequently died young. Being upper class and wealthy could help to a degree only up to a point. Disease and lack of understanding of some basic hygiene meant children died of fevers, accidental poisoning, bad food handling, communicable diseases, complications with dentistry, accidental drug overdoses from common medicines, routine accidents and many other causes. A popular health tonic, for example, was Godfrey's Cordial. It was widely used by concerned parents who wanted the best for their children, or by the more neglectful parents who wanted their children to be kept quiet so they could work longer hours without distraction. It contained ginger, oil of sassafras, rectified alcohol, 95% ABV or around 190% proof, treacle and opium. As you can imagine, it was potentially lethal and often caused lasting damage to children as they grew up. It was available for sale without restriction. For the lowest classes of late Georgian and Victorian society, you could add starvation industrial accidents, alcoholism and murder to that list. There are notorious cases of desperate Victorian parents selling a baby to a baby farmer to raise them and care for them. The baby farmer bought the child, then had to raise them, but typically used them as labour to make money. Essentially a form of domestic slavery, or at least cheap labour. For the unfortunate, it included a lifetime of abuse. One terrible example went far beyond abuse though. The infamous Amelia Dyer was a nurse 
turned baby farmer. She would have seemed ideal, except for the fact she was secretly one of the most prolific serial killers in history. By the time she was hung for murder, she was confirmed as having killed 12 children. Her actual number of suspected kills is between 200 to 400 children. As more evidence emerged post-execution, society was rocked and it led to key legal reforms. It is very hard to give you child mortality statistics. I could do it, but it really needs a separate episode. Statistics can be very misleading if you aren't careful. If I gave you the child mortality statistics for London in 1854, would they really tell you the state of child health in the 1820s? You'd need to compare them to the ones for upper class English children between 1800 and 1830 to actually cover Victoria's childhood and make a meaningful comparison. But you'd need to account for wealth, changed diets, massive regional variations. Plus, I picked 1854 deliberately for that example there, as there was a cholera epidemic raging in London that year, and it skews the figures. Plus, just classifying deaths is difficult. The figures get more reliable as time goes on, and as records got better and better. For now though, it is just worth remembering that lots of children in the 1820s, the 1890s, died extremely young and in high numbers. Also bear in mind, there is a continued debate about the true levels of infanticide in historical societies, and how they can be misidentified as mortality from natural causes. Probably a lot more children were deliberately killed off than was admitted to. A desperate mother who was barefoot, whose children were already stealing scraps from waste heaps to survive, might smother a very young child and explain it away as an accident of rolling over them in their sleep after a night drinking gin. Common accident? So entirely believable. The late Georgian and Victorian era saw huge population growth in the UK. Now there are only two real ways to grow a population. Increase the birth rate above the death rate or decrease the death rate. Or if you can't adjust the birth rates, you can substitute using immigration. The causes of the population explosion in England are disputed amongst historians. The classic explanation is that improved food supplies and sanitation decrease the death rate. Other historians disagree and cite evidence around people marrying younger and having more children since their labour value increased with the rise of the factory system. Still, there are plenty of accounts 
that show the genuine love the Victorians had for their children, frequently sacrificing for them and trying their best to do the right thing as parents as far as they understood it. Early Victorian childhood was not therefore, by and large, a magical time in life, full of wandering joy. Instead, it was a time where survival was precarious. Victoria herself wasn't immune to many of the dangers. Even murder wasn't entirely off the cards. She was a potential heir to the throne. It wouldn't be unheard of for other claimants to a royal throne to say to trusted advisers things like It is so sad when fragile children fall ill or have a tragic accident. So sad. We must just hope little Alexandrina Victoria avoids such a fate. Of course, if the worst were to happen... You will see later on that there was always a suspicion that Victoria's uncle, the Duke of Cumberland, was keen for this kind of tragic illness or accident to occur. Rumours already circulated that he was a murderer who had killed a servant. Would arranging the death of a rival claimant really be so far-fetched? John Conroy and the Duchess of Kent mentioned their worries over the issue. It is hard to say if the concerns were genuine or if they were just hyping things up to tighten their grip on the girl who might inherit the throne. It is easy to paint the Duke of Cumberland in a far worse light than the actual evidence supports. He was known to be a pretty harsh, conservative, anti-Catholic king when he took the throne of Hanover, but that doesn't make him a child killer. He did make a political power play oust the Duke of Wellington's government and get himself made Prime Minister by the King to prevent the Catholic Emancipation Bill. But it didn't work out. It was nothing more than standard party politics. Nor were the rumours of him murdering his valet ever proved. It was ruled a suicide, possibly after the valet attempted to kill the Duke in his sleep. Scandal dogged him through his life with rumours of an affair with a society lady that may have led to her husband committing suicide. There were also rumours that he had an illegitimate son with his own sister. This is all based on a lot of rumour and maybes and perhapses. Above all, he was an arch-conservative Tory who hated reform and felt his Tory colleague, the Duke of Wellington of all people, was too quick to compromise his principles. He was staunchly opposed to any kind of reform or Catholicism, and was an ardent believer in tradition. He opposed the railways near Eton College, as they would let middle-class people disrupt the education of the elite. It is interesting to note, though, 
that these rumours gained traction. So at the very least, he had alienated enough people for them to be happy to spread them. You didn't normally attack the royal family unless you were sure the tide of public opinion was running with you or you had plenty of political cover. An irritated royal duke who was popular could wield immense power to destroy you. But in the case of the Duke of Cumberland, he had little in the way of political power, despite his connections. Of course, balanced against this, there is little in the way of hard evidence. Don't forget the old saying, the lie can get around the world before the truth has even got its boots on. Remember the nonsense around President Obama's birth certificate, for instance. The public burned effigies of the Duke in the street because he was seen as anti-reform and therefore against the people. That was true, but it didn't automatically mean he hated people or was evil. He was a highly conservative aristocrat who hated change. It is amazing how throughout history, the very people who benefit from the status quo the most are those that become its most passionate defenders. That can lead to the worst situation of a person doing things they passionately believe are good and moral, but which have significant negative effects on society. Still, you can see how he would make the people responsible for Victoria a little edgy. With this background in mind, we can look at Victoria's childhood more objectively, but recognising that she felt it was unhappy. Because emotion is subjective, we can absolutely recognise and accept that she felt this way whilst we look at events. It is important to accept her feelings as valid to her, since they would influence how she acted as an adult. When we left off in episode 18, the Duchess of Kent and Victoria were in a precarious situation. The Duke of Kent had just died, King George III had died, leaving the hated Prince Regent to become George IV. The family were essentially bankrupt, with long-term debts. They had no relatives in the UK to turn to, besides the visits from Leopold, and Parliament had little interest in supporting them. The Duchess blamed the new king for her husband's death. She felt if George IV had been more generous and supportive, they wouldn't have ended up freezing in a run-down seaside villa in winter. She was in a dreadful position. The king felt she was the responsibility of her family to support, not him. That was actually legally correct at the time, as well as being the accepted social custom. A widow was supposed to be supported by her family, which for the Duchess meant her younger brother Leopold. He had almost been Prince Consort through marriage to King George IV's daughter Charlotte and retained a 
generous allowance, even after her death. He was getting the staggering sum of 50000 a year, and keeping himself in fine old high life with drink and mistresses, but he was only willing to give the Duchess 3000 a year. In a rough translation to today's value, that £50,000 was worth about £5 million, or nearly $7 million. So, that was really tight of him. But don't forget, this is the relative poverty of the obscenely rich. The majority of the population of the UK could not dream of earning that amount in a lifetime. In addition to the 3000 from Leopold, the Duchess was entitled to 6000 a year of the Duke of Kent's allowance. In fairness, no. That 9000 had to support the Duchess and her whole household, so it had to cover her food, furniture, accommodation, transport, horses, and all of the household staff, plus the numerous obligations that came with being the mother of the potential heir to the throne, as well as the Duke of Kent's enormous debts. Banquets with huge numbers of guests had to be paid for herself, even if she didn't want them. If well managed though, it would be enough when combined with selling some of her German titles. This would have put her in the wealthiest portion of the population. The big problem was that of all aristocrats. Aristocrats, namely that her outgoings usually far exceeded her income. Clever aristocrats economised, invested and didn't get carried away with keeping up with the Joneses. Prince Albert, for instance, brought sharp economies to Victoria after they married, and his skill with finances and household economy meant the couple were able to pay off the Duke of Kent's old debts and still build up a private fortune of their own. So much depended on the skill of the person handling the money. That person, the Duchess of Kent, would be John Conroy. If you listened to episode 18, you will know he was not a guy to trust as far as you could throw him. When the group moved back to Kensington Palace, Conroy made special efforts to befriend King George IV's sister, Princess Sophia, when she was going for rides. He told the Duchess of Kent the princess would be a useful ally any power struggle against King George IV when it came to Victoria. The princess was soon under Conroy's spell. She moved into the apartments next door to the Duchess of Kent and appointed Conroy as controller of her finances. By a remarkable coincidence, his bank balance at the time went from £100 in 1822, to over 22,000 in 1825. The princess also gifted him a large house for his wife and children, worth over 4,000 pounds, 
and estates in Wales worth around 18,000. So all in all, he had suddenly acquired, in three years, the equivalent of around three million pounds, without any investment in the stock market, founding a company, or lodging a patent. But for the Duchess, Conroy must have seemed like a lifeline. The king clearly wasn't interested in helping her, and wanted her gone from the country whilst Parliament gave her nothing, and her brother's support was grudging at best, despite him living in luxury. John Conroy, though, had been there with them during the toughest of times with the Duke. He had stayed with her when her husband died, and he was sticking with her, even when poverty and exile seemed likely. Plus, he was personally quite magnetic, he seemed to have that dubious talent of almost casting a spell over women and dominating them. Unfortunately, as we will see, he wasn't in any way interested in anyone besides John Conroy. It would be fascinating to be able to sit down with his wife and the Duchess and the others who fell under his influence to see what it was about him was so compelling? Was he a bit like Rasputin, all intensity and focus? Or was he like Charles Manson, pretending to be deep but utterly sociopathic? Or did he radiate self-confidence, like Robert Maxwell, all shamelessness and self-regard? Not that everyone fell for him, The Duke of Wellington was a pretty good judge of character within his own aristocratic worldview, and he clearly disliked Conroy intensely. He was convinced Conroy was having an affair with the Duchess. In her excellent book, Becoming Queen, historian Kate Williams states that she is sure on the evidence that they were not having sexual relations especially since it might have weakened Conroy's hold over the Duchess. Affair or not, he now had what he needed. Control over the Duchess of Kent, and therefore access to power, plus tons of money that he was conning or embezzling out of the princess. I really, really wish I knew what his wife thought. She must have noticed... They had acquired a new house and a vast fortune. Presumably, she was either happy with the plan, or at least didn't care where the money came from, as long as she got a cut. Or maybe Conroy didn't bother to justify himself, and just told her to mind her own business. That wouldn't seem out of character either. The Duchess of Kent was also getting what she wanted, establishing a power base and a chance to be regent. Both she and Conroy were convinced that George IV would not live long. They were also convinced that the remaining dukes of York and Clarence would not live long either. If the king and the dukes dropped off their perches, 
before Victoria turned 18, then Conroy and the Duchess would make her a puppet. Once they were regents, well, who knew when that would end, if at all? It would certainly be possible for them to have pretended she was mad, like her grandfather George III. She could have been confined at Windsor, and they would have ruled with little restraint. Victoria came to realise this. Imagine how she must have felt as she got older, realising that her own mother was pretending she was mad just to seize power. The complicity between the Duchess and John Conroy wasn't something to be easily forgiven, still less forgotten. So to increase their control, the Duchess and Conroy devised the infamous Kensington system. In Conroy's own words to the Duchess, quote, From 1825, your Royal Highness conceived and acted on a system that was to make the princess the nation's hope. It would take volumes to narrate your difficulties, your anxiety, end quote. The Kensington system was designed isolate Victoria from the royal family and nearly everyone else. It aimed to make her a figure of remote, dignified mystery to the people, in contrast to the profligate Hanoverian ancestors. It also aimed to link her to popular reformists of the Whig faction, to capitalise on the anti-establishment mood of the population after Peterloo. She was to be an idealised antidote to the whole rotten political system. Conroy and the Duchess hoped this would increase the monarchy's power to even greater levels. It also required them to have complete control of Victoria. She was never to be left alone. She was required be accompanied at all times, denied visits to her royal uncles and especially the king. She was to have everything she did, ate and said, reported Conroy. She had to sleep in her mother's room and was forced to play with Conroy's children, who probably reported to him. She even had to hold people's hands when she walked downstairs till she was an adult. It follows many of the patterns that we today recognise in the United Kingdom as being emotional abuse that reaches the threshold for criminal domestic violence. Victoria would look back on the Kensington system and state it was why she had a miserable childhood. When set out like that, it certainly looks pretty bad. In a later episode we will look at the more contentious question of whether it worked, and if so, whether it was worth it. In 1820, the Duchess of Kent and Victoria moved into apartments in the slightly run-down Kensington Palace. King George IV arranged another little slap in the face by refusing them use of the state apartments. 
they got the old rooms of the Duke of Kent at least, which he had overhauled at fabulous expense on borrowed money. As a side note, many of the finest buildings in Britain exist only because of extravagant aristocrats running up massive debts. Victoria would look back on Kensington as uncomfortable, dark, gloomy and insect infested. The Duchess of Clarence asked little Victoria what she'd like as a birthday present one year and Victoria replied she'd like the windows cleaned. The Beatles in particular were dreaded as they could infest houses. To quote historian Kate Williams from Becoming Queen, quote, One housekeeping manual warned severely beetles could multiply till on the kitchen floor at night palpitates with a living carpet and in time the family cockroach will make raids on the upper rooms travelling along the lines of hot water pipes. Beetles would clutch each other and hang in corners like bees, even in palaces. End quote. You can see why the Victorians would come to embrace the cult of cleanliness with such enthusiasm. Raising a royal child in a hierarchical society really wasn't easy. On the one hand, like all children, she needed love mixed with clear boundaries that she could test appropriately, combined with a blend of encouragement and discipline. But as a royal, and seemingly an heir to the throne, she was extremely high in the social hierarchy. No servant wanted to be remembered by a king or queen as the tyrant that gave them a beating, or forced them to endless lines of copying. Nor were the visiting tutors thrilled with the idea being remembered in a bad light by a future monarch. Who knew what doors that could close? This meant that overindulgence was a constant problem for royal children. Plus, servants were expected to remember their place. And you can believe the Duchess of Kent and John Conroy would make sure they did. Aristocrats would be hyper-aware of the social hierarchy, as would be the servants. Victoria, as an adult, would play at the rustic life in Scotland, but for the servants, the boundaries remained strictly in place, except for with John Brown, of course. Young Victoria was healthy and considered a bit plump. She was described as warm-hearted and lively, with a surprisingly fiery temper and a streak of stubbornness. She could be mischievous too. She swung between sweet affection and being intensely demanding. She could even be cute. To quote her grandmother, quote, In the morning, she sometimes does not want to get out of bed preferring to tell all sorts of tales. Lazen takes her gently from her bed, sits her down on the thick carpet, where she has to put on her stockings. One has to contain oneself, not to burst out laughing, 
when she says in a tragic tone of voice, Poor Vicky, she is an unhappy child. She just doesn't know which is the right stocking and which is the left. I am just an unhappy child. End quote. Raising children is never easy, and they all have their own personalities and quirks. Victoria was regarded as being incredibly difficult. She didn't get her own way, but she was not punished too harshly. At least by the standards of the 19th century, she was sometimes put out in the hallway with her hands tied behind her back. Today, we would see that as child abuse, but for the 1820s, this was mild compared to the beatings, thrashings, cold water baths, or laxative solutions that might be given out. And it wasn't just Victoria who thought that her early childhood, Kensington, was unhappy. Her older half-sister, Fedora, recalled, quote, to have been deprived of all intercourse and not one cheerful thought in that dismal existence of ours was very hard. My only happy time was going out or driving with you and Lazen. Then I could speak and look as I like. I escaped some years of imprisonment, which you, my poor darling sister, had to endure after I was married. End quote. Oh, and a quick note on language there. In the Victorian period, intercourse meant normal interaction between people, including talking, paying bills, or whatever. Modern usage normally uses it as sexual intercourse, but the phrase sexual intercourse just means an interaction that is sexual. Victorians would talk of familial intercourse or the routine intercourse of human affairs, which just meant everyday stuff. It comes from the Latin root intercursus, meaning communication or trade. So be aware of that when you read Victorian books or other sources. It was a common word that didn't have a sexual connotation. At the same time as the confinement, boredom and obsessive surveillance was the fawning of courtiers and aristocrats. Victoria knew there was something different about her and knew that people treated her as a superior in some ways, even if they wouldn't exactly obey her. Bishops would often play with her on the floor. She had dukes and aristocrats around her and servants. This included an elaborately uniformed footman to follow her wherever she went and servants bowed and curtsied to her. This was a world away from the childhood of the middle classes, but not so far as you might think. Children were expected to be seen and not heard. Physical punishment was seen as good, necessary and character building. Strict routine was considered especially important. The big difference, really, was the social deference paid to Victoria and her utter isolation from children and her wider family. That was noticed 
and complained about by the wider royal family, found the Duchess of Kent and Conroy deliberately kept little Victoria away from her aunts, uncles, grandmother and wider social circles. She would never starve or risk homelessness. But it's hard to call it exactly good for her mental health. On the other hand, countless emperors, empresses, kings and queens throughout history have been raised in isolation to preserve a mystic aura around themselves. The Chinese emperors, probably the most famous and extreme examples, but they weren't unique. Plus, there were all the usual problems of childhood. Teething, learning to walk, that difficult process of figuring out the strange, random rules the adult world that grown-ups think are so important but which have no real logic behind them like not eating with your elbows on the table. Then came learning to read and write. All the pressures of growing up add in things today we would call physical and mental torture plus the strangeness that always seems to go with royal families. Then on top of that, she had lost her father and you still have to throw in power-crazed scheming of the Duchess of Kent and John Conroy. It was still too early for photography. That would come later in her life. But there are royal portraits of her as a very young child. You need to be a bit careful with these. They are often an idealised version of the subject anyway. It is a rare artist who will paint the truth of a subject. Still rarer an artist who can combine truth and beauty. Still, it is nice to see the little girl as she was. In the famous painting by Stephen Denning in 1823, she is aged four. She is an adorable little dumpling in a giant puffy black dress wearing a black plumed hat that is nearly as big as she is. She also has delicate white stockings which you can barely see poking out from the enormous dress then a set brilliantly shined black shoes. She's posed in the countryside though I think it unlikely Denning would have sketched in setting. He probably added the background after sketching Victoria indoors. There's another painting that makes her look like she was a chocolate box cover princess. All blonde curls, lace and ribbons and delicate features. This is all a bit different from the fairy tale of a princess growing up in a palace. I'm certain that a lot of children of the Victorian poor would have killed for Victoria's childhood though. I could find hundreds of quotes of deprivation of childhood in late Georgian and early Victorian times. It got worse in the cities as their population ballooned during the 19th century and some of the accounts of the factory working children are horrific. Child poverty. Poverty in general 
was seen as a good thing. The OECD notes that, quote, Well into the 19th century, poverty was widely seen as inevitable. Economists estimate that in 1820, around 84% of the Earth's population lived in absolute poverty, or on the equivalent of what we now call a dollar a day, brackets, it's actually $1.25, close bracket, poverty was seen as useful. Everyone but an idiot knows that the lower classes must be kept poor or they will never be industrious, the English writer and traveller Arthur Young wrote in 1771. At the end of the Georgian period and in the early Victorian period, child labour was seen as a good thing. A poor child that didn't work was actually seen as immoral. It was judged an expression of laziness and letting the family down. From seven years onward, the poor were expected to work. Idleness was reserved for the rich. Poverty, moreover, was seen as a good thing in itself. Poor people were seen as more productive and could make goods more cheaply. Attempts at ending poverty were therefore seen by many mainstream economists as not just unfeasible, actually harmful to the poor and the wider economy. This was justified on the basis cheap goods could be exported more easily to give a better balance of trade and that was viewed as the highest economic good. You might notice some uncomfortably familiar echoes here to our modern economy where trade, company profits and cheap goods are again given primacy over attempts to combat poverty with redistribution being labelled as harmful and unworkable. As is often the case on this podcast, I want to show you that the Victorians, their attitudes and their actions weren't always as far from our own as popular portrayals might pretend. I'll give you a couple of examples of you might almost call middle-of-the-road child poverty. The first is from an interview that the journalist Mayhew conducted in his famous surveys. The interview is with a nine-year-old girl who says, quote, I go about the streets with watercresses, crying, four bunches a penny, watercresses. I know a good many games, but I don't play at them, because going out with cresses tires me. I ain't a child, and I shan't be a woman till I'm twenty. But I'm past eight, I am. Watercress girl, end quote. For her, childhood was over, aged nine, and only working to escape starvation existed. It was a tough existence, but it could be profitable. One of the boys Mayhew interviews was all bravado, bravado, but eventually was shamed by his mates to admit he could make more money 
as a crossing sweeper, but he isn't quick-witted enough to get customers. Accommodation was difficult, with some boys in the trade sleeping three to a bed and thinking themselves lucky. Being barefoot and wearing torn clothing was common. Flower sellers also lived a precarious existence. It was often a vital secondary income if the parents were alive, but Mayhew interviewed two orphans who sold flowers. For the older girl, it could be a useful cover for prostitution. Again, from an interview by Mayhew, quote, Of these girls, the elder was 15 and the younger 11. Both were clad in old, but not torn, dark print frocks, hanging closely, yet so loosely about them as to show the deficiency of the underclothing. They wore old, broken black chip bonnets. The older sister had a pair of old, worn-out shoes on her feet. The younger was barefoot, but trotted along in a gait at once quick and feeble. End quote. He goes on to describe how they can afford a single damp room, which they shared with their 13-year-old brother. Part of the room was curtained off to provide privacy for a married Irish couple who were the room's owners. For older girls, street prostitution could provide extra money to avoid starvation, or if the girl in question had a child, she could hire herself as a wet nurse to supplement her parents' wages. Boys, of course, could turn to the factories or illegal chimney sweeping. Scarlet fever and tuberculosis killed rich and poor children alike, as did measles, smallpox, whooping cough, dysentery and diphtheria. Whilst the poor were more at risk due to cramped living conditions and poor diet, the rich were just as vulnerable to disease. Victoria was born in the age before mass vaccinations, so she was at much at risk of death at a young age, as everyone else. At least she had the smallpox vaccination. It was becoming more popular in the Victorian era, but even George Washington had seen how valuable it was. He mandated inoculation for the Continental Army to protect them from smallpox. The Victorians would be world leaders in vaccination in the 1840s and 1850s. The rise of mass vaccinations would transform human societies around the world, saving billions of lives. So Victoria owed a huge thank you to her parents for being extremely forward-thinking and at least protecting her from smallpox. Dickens railed against child poverty in 1838 in Oliver Twist and it would be an ongoing theme throughout the Victorian period. Anti-poverty reform would be almost a crusade during the Victorian period and had religious elements running through it but it was a fight 
against the entrenched views of the importance of poverty. To sum up then, late Georgian and early Victorian childhood could be hellish. Death was quite likely, abuse almost certain, and hard work an absolute given, unless you were rich. Victoria, therefore, had a materially better off early childhood than the vast majority of the population. But the first signs of abuse from her mother and Conroy were already in place. Victoria's childhood would be bad, but in a quite different way from the main of the population. If you are the victim of abuse, though, it doesn't really matter how much better off you are in wealth terms. The real problem is the lack of power or means of escape. Victoria had no one to turn to, except for Lazen. We'll wrap it up there for today. In the next couple of shows, we will bring Victoria from girlhood through to the death of William IV and her becoming queen. We will hear about the increasingly desperate attempts by John Conroy to retain control. We will also look at the state of the country outside of Kensington Palace during Victoria's childhood, consequences of authoritarian Tory rule, and the continued attempts of society to resist real reform. Then we will turn to one of the great engines of change that would cause Victorian society to explode with dynamism and force a new world on everyone. Okay, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Catch me on Twitter at ageofvictoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye and I bid you adieu until next time.